0: You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders.
1: Hey everyone, this is Julie's podcast producer, Megan. For this episode, we decided to do something a little different and record a Q&A session live from Julie's Women's Riding and Relaxation Retreat at Sealy's U Ranch in Granby, Colorado. Every evening before dinner, we gathered in the lodge to recap what happened in clinic sessions that day, share stories, and talk about challenges that writers are dealing with at home or that surfaced during a clinic session. We hope you enjoy this special fireside Q&A with Julie and get a lot out of it. As always, if you have questions you would like answered in a future episode, message Julie on her Facebook page or submit them at juliegoodnight.com slash podcast. Before we get started, it's time for Stride by Stride with Julie and our friend Des at Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. Smooth Stride not only makes Julie's favorite riding jeans, they also sponsor this podcast and make it possible for you to listen for free. Be sure to check them out at smoothstride.com. Now, on with the show. Desiree, tell me a little bit about the
2: sizing on your jeans because it's, It's really unique because they're sized by horse breeds. How how did you come about that? (laughs) Well, you know, uh, when we got
3: to that point where we uh, were thinking about how to handle the sizing in the the labels and the tags and everything, um, industry sizing is so all over the place. You know, I'm a size 4, 5, and a, in one gene, and I'm a size eight, maybe ten, in another gene with without uh, a, a weight fluctuation, and so on Eric's uh, Eric's end of it, he um, he didn't really want um, sizes to because girls would think, ladies would think, oh, I'm a size six, and then they would get a size six in our genes, but in but They'd be wrong, you know. They they it would be incorrect. And I, on the other hand, am a rider, and I'm not a, I, I I I can do math. I'm proud of myself. I can, but I didn't want to deal with numbers all day long, if you can imagine. Because I do all the customer service, I do all the shipping, I do all the inventory, and things are uh-huh. 32, 33, 36, 29 length, and 30 and 20, you know, six or eight and ten. And uh-huh. so I said to Eric, I said, why don't we just give them all breed names? And you know, we the three lengths and uh so he gave me that delicious and this is one of the things that I love about um the company is that I get to be creative. Um and so uh I came up with this uh list of names and that's and that's what we did. We just decided to give them all breed names and it's really, really fun. Gals absolutely love it. They can't wait to put a tape measure around their body and find out what breed size they are. Just
2: fun, you know. So, can you run through the breeds, flash sizes, starting from uh, one end down, uh, from the bottom up, or the top down? Sure. Yeah, I'll I'll start the smallest, and it correlates to a standard industry
3: size four. So we named that the Arabian. So that's the smallest one, and uh, then the next next size up is a Mustang, size six. Then there's a Paint, size eight. Then we have the Andalusian size ten, then a Lusitano, size twelve, Appaloosa, fourteen, and then we're starting to get into the plus sizes. Morgan, size sixteen, Frisian, size eighteen, palomino is a twenty, lipison is the twenty two. We are fading out the very last one, Nicota, because um it's it's a gene that uh is uh, just a, just a, believe it or not, it's a little bit too big for everybody. So we're 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 going to be uh, fading that one out. So those are the breed names.
2: Wow, that, that's that's uh, funny because it's funny to think about the the actual horses and the breeds, but also wow, you have a lot of sizes starting uh, starting with the smallest four and, and right up the size starts So that's great. And then I know you have three different lengths. So um, tell me just quickly, um, another really unique thing that I think it relates to the sizes, because a lot of people aren't sure where they are on that scale, and they might fit somewhere in between. So, you came up with a pretty unique um, customer service advantage, uh, I think, in the way you allow people to order riding jeans.
3: Yep, that's another one of the fun um, creative things that I came up with, and um, I call it my Colt Special. And uh, again, it kind of goes back to behavior on the ground because you know you got a Colt and you work with it, and you, and and then so basically um, a girl will uh, a gal will take her measurements and she'll look at the sizing chart. We even have a size calculator now that you can enter in your measurements and it'll spit out the two breed names that uh, you should try. So so a gal will take her measurements, and she'll choose two sizes of jeans that she thinks will work for her. She'll go ahead and make the order, or I can do it here. I do a lot of orders by phone. And then I ship them out in a bag that you can reseal with a prepaid return label. That's part of the special, is that I pay for the return, because when it's a good colt, I call it a good colt, when, when a girl gets one, or she gets them, and then one fits, and she loves it and keeps it and as happy as can be, and then she turns around and puts the unwanted jean that didn't fit back in that bag with the prepaid return label, and all she has to do is put it right in her mailbox because I almost exclusively use USPS uh, Priority, and it's fast and it's inexpensive, and then she ships it back. I don't charge. It's authorized only because I have to do that in case I never see my jeans again, but I don't charge until she tells me she wants to keep one and the other one gets back home. And then, and only then do I charge. And she has up to 30 days. We have 30 days to do this exercise. And it is one of the things that's really making this work for me, for for the the, the genes personally, because having the two to try invariably, one fits. And if it doesn't, the gal gets to seal them, put them on, and decide if they want to continue on with switching it out. And that's what I do. I do all that customer service myself. She says, I love them. We just missed, you know, missed one size, I need one size smaller, one size larger, shoot it on out, and then I charge. It's all good, and it's done.
2: Wow, that is so awesome. And actually, I have a couple of friends that, that took advantage of the Colt Special. Um, <laughs> Of course, I wear the jeans all the time. I, I, it's all I wear when I'm home and it's gotten to be just about all I wear when I'm working on the road too. And so a lot of people say, wow, where'd you get those jeans? <laughs> and I just give them the website, smoothstride.com and they order. So I've had a couple of good friends order from you and, um, get the Colt special and get both sizes and they, we're so thrilled to to be able to do that and it was so easy and the fact that you don't even charge until they return the second pair of pants but in in at least one of the instances of my two friends they ended up keeping the other pair cuz another friend wanted them and mm-hmm. uh, so it was sort of a win-win situation for everybody so I think that's really cool and it's it's something That's nice about a small company that is Mm -hmm. entrepreneur-run, and you know your customer. You are your customer. Yes. I am your customer. You know the customer very well because you are the customer, and uh, I think that's really awesome what you do. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Okay, we're ready for our first question. So, Karen, go ahead. Okay. So, for many of us who have horses that we board, and we don't have a great deal of time, and we want to work on a problem with the horse. Pick a problem. You pick the problem.
4: I want my horse to go through a water box.
0: Um, trail obstacle course? Trail
4: obstacle course. Okay. And I have a total of two hours. Mm-hmm. And we're having a battle of the wills. Rot row. Yeah. How vital is it for me to continue this battle of wills to it, to success, to an attempt to
0: success, to a subordination, how vital is it for me to continue and ruin both of our days, Ryan? I might be about to ruin your day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's critically vital. And that's why I said to some of you guys mm-hmm. yesterday, um, if you don't think you can... Accomplish the task. Don't ask, because you have far more to lose by asking and failing. Not a and you're right. Pick a problem: loading in the trailer, leaving the barnyard by yourself. Who can think of another one?
4: Standing to mount
0: an issue of mounting at walking the mounting block, walking by, and even sometimes just walking by something without running over you. So. Um, if, and and this happens in trailer loading a lot. I used to, when we took horses in training, uh, and very, you know, kind of regularly you, you get horses that they might be a really nice, perfectly well-trained horse, uh, that used to load the trailer or whatever, for whatever reason, now it's got a trailer loading problem, or maybe they bought this horse and it came with a problem. They just didn't know it. But when they have made numerous and lengthy attempts to load this horse in the trailer and not a once have they gotten the horse in the trailer, and sometimes it's literally occurred over days and weeks and months of an hours every time of fighting with this horse to get in the trailer and never succeeding. And that, that's when they bring the horse to the tra- uh, trainer. You know, I could have trained him in five minutes to get in the trailer the first time. But now think about how much has been ingrained in that horse and think of how much of the wrong thing that horse has learned. So our first responsibility as a good and fair horse person is to always set that horse up for success. And so if I have limited time, I need to make sure I don't start something I can't finish. Now... Having said that, in spite of our best efforts, sometimes that still occurs. So uh, let's say I've boarded my horse and I've got two hours to before I have to go to my next appointment or whatever. It's a it's a time block I can't alter. And everything was going fine until you know an hour and a half in, just when I was getting ready to quit. I made this mistake of asking my horse for something he wasn't ready for or whatever it was. And uh, I find myself in a fight and it's a war of the wills at that point. Um, And you realize, oh, my gosh, I've made a terrible mistake. I've started something I can't finish and I don't have the time to finish it, which, by the way, your horse will then learn when you're on a schedule. I'm serious. I wish this weren't true about horses but clever horses will learn that when you're on a schedule that might be a good time to act up I'll tell you a funny story about Disney World ponies sometime but it'll take too much time but clever horses learn at that depth so um, if I found myself in that position where I was going to have to quit on this horse I was starting to See that I wasn't going to be able to get him across the tarp, or there a, a horse master episode we did was about getting a, the horse across the tarp and this mare, and she was black as night, she did not have a white hair on her. she was black black coal black, black as a witch, <laughs> and she um had just recently completed a week long trail obstacle course where they never. Once, got her to step foot on the tarp. And um, this was being this, it was like a five-day clinic. It was being taught by a friend of mine who is a very, very good clinician. And I don't know why, but they never, this married got the best of them. Every time she was that kind of mare, she was a tough nut. and She just wasn't going to do it. And so, I did not know when we started on this venture that she had been through this week-long clinic of training her not to get on the tarp. Um, So, I started about doing what I do, which is, um, you know, making the right thing easy and the wrong thing hard. So... Uh, I would approach the, the tarp, and I would give her all the time in the world to look at it and smell it, but any time she'd start backing up, I'd just start working the snot out of her. Right, left, right, left, hard trot, right, left, right, left, right, left, till I could feel her lungs just underneath me going. <laughs> and then I would approach the tarp, and as long as she showed forward interest in the tarp, I would let her stand there and catch her oxygen. And... And then I would gently, little by little, ask her to go forward. And at any time she'd back up or start looking behind her, boom, 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 boom. There we'd go. Hard trot, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. And we're filming for the TV show. And normally, if you guys have watched the TV show, we do what we film in the main teaching segment of the show. We normally film from start to finish. There isn't a lot of time that you don't actually see that occurred on the show. Uh, there isn't a lot of time. Yeah. I'm, usually most of what occurred between me and the horse and the student actually is the 10 minute segment that shows on the air. But when sometimes training horses takes longer than 10 minutes and when it does, we always indicate with a montage that there's a time lapse. I don't know what time we started this thing, but it was like three or four in the afternoon and it was getting dark when she walked across that tarp. And it, it was watching the sun come down closer and closer to the mountains and knowing once it went behind the mountains, we were going to have difficulty filming. Uh, then, of course, I was getting exhausted, but I don't know. I think it was close. It was under two hours, but it was a long dang time. We were having a war of the wills. When she gave it up, walked over the tarp, she walked over it dead flat-footed about, Six times with no, didn't lift her head, no, nothing. <laughs> so it was. It took that kind of war of the wills for her to make up her mind. In an instance where there had been numerous failures previous, previously, it wouldn't have taken that long if if she hadn't been successful before. So when we get when we get in a war of the will, for, oh, here's one thing I know about a war of the will with a horse. Avoid it at all costs. Seriously. Don't ever try to be in a fight with a horse, ever. Because chances of them winning are very, very good. So I want to make sure that I can avoid the war of the wills, avoid a fight with a horse if I can, but sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes a perfectly well-trained horse just decides he's not going to do that one day, like getting a trailer. Have any of you ever had that the horse that loaded in the trailer every day for years just all of a sudden one day he goes what if i don't what if i don't get in what happens then and you're unprepared for it right you got no help you got no stick you got like what and if he ends up being successful in that then you you know all of a sudden you have a training problem that occurred overnight and um so in that instance where you have to quit, all you the best you can do then is require something else of the horse, something that might not be that easy, but you know you can accomplish, something that might not be that pleasant, but you know you can accomplish, like leave the barnyard and gallop a lap around the racetrack down the street or <laughs> I don't know. Um Something they've done before. Do something that you can have success success with because it's critical that you end your training session with some level of success. And if all that success was at that moment was getting the horse to walk all the way around the arena without balking, then that's the success you take. And you then you go home and you figure out what happened, what am I going to do about it, and when can I come back and tackle this when there is no time limit. We cannot train horses on a time limit. And this is why I know the colt starting contests are fun and educational for people, but every single one of those people, they go in there saying, I'm going to train just like I train them at home. And then they got the clock and the stopwatch and the other guys, they're not training those horses anything like they would train them at home. They're training on the clock. And so that's one of the most fundamental things of natural horsemanship is the horse sets the pace. And so we're going to have to come back and tackle that um, when you have the time. Now, I just want to follow up with one more thing. My horses, the longer I ride them, the harder they try. And here's the reason why. I always require my horses to put forth maximum effort on one thing every time I ride them. And they're never going to know what that one thing is cuz I don't know until I decide. I just I might decide halfway through my ride, I might not I might de- decide when they put out maximum effort but here's the thing it's always at the end of my ride and when they put that maximum effort out I put them away I never in a ride unless I have asked something difficult of my horse and he has put given me his maximum effort on it now it doesn't take long of doing that before about halfway to through your ride your horse and you ask your horse to turn around or stop or pick up the, you know, halt to lope transition. And he's, he's thinking to himself, this could be the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I better do it really well. And he t- puts, starts. So the longer I go in the ride, the more effort he starts putting out. Cause he never knows what the thing is. I'm going to ask him. And so Sometimes I have it planned out because there is something specific I want to work on, like a stop or a rollback or something like that, something I haven't done in a while or I'm getting ready to do a you know, demo or something. Other times I just wait and it cracks me up when they start trying harder. My mare is so transparent about it. Like at the beginning of the ride, she's like, Pfft, you know, yeah, whatever. But the farther I get in that ride, the more she starts really trying hard. Um, so that is a way to bring out, to set a tone in your rides that, you know, I don't expect my horse to put out maximum effort every time I ask him to do something, but when I want maximum effort from them, I expect it. So I, I, uh, you know, I'm pretty easy on them, relaxed on them. I have a flow to my work week with my horses. I never ask anything hard of them on Monday or the first day of the week. We just ride out and, uh, you know long trot low you know as the week as I get to the middle of the week I start asking a little more of them then usually on Thursday I'm gonna uh, or the next the last day of my uh, work sessions I'm gonna ask something pretty hard of them at that point maybe I'm gonna ride a raining pattern or uh, I'm gonna do something kind of hard last day of that week we just have fun we just go on go down to the neighbors and Lope a little bit, or uh, do the garocha pull, or just do something that's really low, uh, low stress for the horses. So um, that having those kinds of rhythms to your training, and 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 that uh, requiring your horse to put out effort at times, um, and rewarding him by putting him away when he puts out the effort. Um, That that gets your horse in a better working frame of mind. So, did that answer your question? That's that's very helpful. Okay, good. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. Ready? Yep. Okay. So, when you're riding your horse on the trail and he's
4: getting too forward, um, jiggy, or he wants to increase his speed and you don't want him to, and um, the trail's too
0: narrow to. Turn him. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to turn him, you're going to end up like spinning him, mm-hmm. and that's just making him more excited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest? Okay. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. So what is what is prompting this behavior? Is it because you're holding him back from horses in front of him? No, you're out by yourself. Is it because you're coming home? It can be because you're coming home. Maybe you cantered on the trail two and days it, and ago that, in that spot. And that Jacked he, him up, yes, and he's and wanting to go. Let's do it again here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's when I would use the pulley rein. And one group we we worked on the pulley rein today, the emergency stopping rein. It is a, a a great way to really take a hold of a horse that's getting strong on you, that's going too fast, that or when you know the one. You're right. The one rein stop works fine if you know how to do it and you have the space to turn the horse. But on a narrow trail, on a, on a trail with treacherous footing, you can't do that. You can't stop by turning. Uh, you can't gain control by turning. Let me just mention, by the way, circling does not gain you control. It momentarily gains you control halfway around the circle. And then you lose that control and then you gain it back. Because when you're out of control, you're not controlling the direction of the horse. And as soon as you start circling halfway around the circle, he's going in the direction he wants to be going, which is away from that thing or towards that thing that he wants or doesn't want. And so um, and so, what happens is if, if he's, let's say he's, uh, let's say it was a situation where the other horses had gone ahead of you and you weren't going, you were going to stay here. And um, you had to kind of turn him and circle him to gain control of him. Uh, again, halfway around that circle he 's going towards the horses that are going away, and halfway he 's going around them, so you never really make any progress with that horse because he 's constantly you're in, in going in one direction halfway around the circle you 're reinforcing what he wants also you 're not changing directions, so by the time he goes oh i don 't want to go be be going this way he goes oh i 'm going the way I want oh i don 't want to be going this way oh i 'm going the way I want." So you never get anywhere with that horse. You're not really controlling the direction. When you and, and as I said before, you always have more control over horses when you change their direction repeatedly. That's what horses do to each other to gain dominance. And that's what we do to gain control of that horse. But, but there are many instances where you cannot turn the horse to gain control of it. That's when the pulley rein come, comes in handy. The pulley rein is the emergency stopping rein. It is not easy to do. Um, Most people don't know how to do it and are never taught it. Um, And even if you were taught it, if you don't practice it, you won't be able to whip it out in the event of an emergency. But when you have, it sounds like your horse is is forward going and strong. What kind of horse is he?
4: Appendix quarter
0: horse. Okay, so he's got that thoroughbred in him and a going horse that defaults to go. You know we we talk a lot about there's two kinds of horses in this world: horses with too much go and horses with too much woe it the horses that are right smack in the middle are few and far between, but they sure are fun. um My new little colt pepperoni, I think is that gonna be that way. He's all about the go, but he loves to stop and um but anyway, the horses with a lot of go, the forward moving horses. That is their default behavior. So any time in their head anything is slightly amiss, they default to going faster. In horses like that, you want to know the pulley rein, and you want to um, at times ride in it constantly. So with the pulley rein, if you if you think about riding two handed, and you guys that are sitting here listening, put your hands down in front of you and think about this. So you two handed. Two hands on the reins. Your hands are in front of the horn or in front of the pommel of the saddle. Um, I'm going to grab the tail of one rein and slide my hand down to shorten that rein. And then I'm going to pick that hand and and brace it over the neck of the horse with my knuckles straight into the neck of the horse. And this locks his nose in place. This rein is so short and it's braced against his neck. It locks his nose in place. If I think I'm going to have a tough time stopping this horse... I'll actually lock it to where his nose is bent that way just a little bit towards the towards the outside. Then with this thumb, I'm going to grab the bite of my other rein, slide my hand down, and I'm going to pull straight back with one hand. Your first hand is now pressing into the neck of the horse because as you pull back and up with all your body weight, it's wanting to pull his nose that way, but the first rein has his nose locked this way so he cannot turn and what happens is you are now able to generate leverage on the horse's back with your entire body weight and all that pressure is going to one corner of his jaw so it is a significant amount of pressure in a one very small place so it levels the playing field between uh in the weight differential between you and your horse so particularly if you're what kind of bit are you riding in?
4: I have the miler the I think the wide, port, and it's got the
0: rings the rings perfect the three ring combination is the bit I would want that horse in, so that f- strong forward moving horse is a hot blooded horse he's got a lot of he's and his default behavior is uh go. And he tends to be a highly sensitive horse. The thoroughbred type horses tend to be highly sensitive. And that means they're sensitive to everything sound, sight, smells, movement, touch. Exactly. And bit pressure. So our greatest temptation when we have a horse that's too too fast and too forward is to use a bigger, batter bit. But that adds to the horse's anxiety. And in adding to the anxiety, what have we done? Made him faster. Made him faster. Mm-hmm. So um, you did the exact right thing on the bit, which was go to the go to a bit that gives you more control. Uh, that particular bit has more points of pressure, so it distributes the pressure from the nose to the pole to the chin and the mouth. And it engages mouth pressure last. And so you're able to really take a hold of those horses without scaring them, without putting so much pressure on their mouth that it freaks them out. Going to a stronger bit with a hot-blooded forward horse is almost always a mistake. Rarely is that going to, almost always that's going to make the horse worse because it increases the anxiety level. So the pulley rain, by the way, um, there's articles on my website about it. Um, we have, I believe, some video. There's plenty of video on the paid side of our website, uh, the paid resources. I believe there's access to it on the um, free side too. Go to juliegoodnight.com slash academy and search for pulley rain in the uh, search bar or emergency stop in the search bar. Um, and I know I've done it for CHA as well, so they have it um, free. Uh, Certified Horsemanship Association, they have a YouTube channel that has a lot of safety videos and a lot of teaching videos, how to do this, how to do that. I just, I record a few of them every year for them. Um, and it's a great resource, free resource for you. But the pulley rein is on there as well. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm
5: going to go home and try that.
0: Okay. How many of you were in the group where we practiced that today? It was this afternoon.
4: It's a lot to juggle, and depending on the kind of reins you use, it's a little bit
0: different. It
4: doesn't matter what kind of bit you're using?
0: Well, if you're using a shanked bit, a severe bit, and you use this, yeah, you might go over the horse's (laughs) (laughs) today. I don't. The only way you could get in trouble with this is if you, uh, like if the horse stopped, he'll stop. When you do it right, he'll stop on his nose. And then if you don't release it, he'll immediately start backing up. If you still don't release it, he's going to go over. But usually in that event, all you want to do is stop. So most people are going to release when the horse stops. With a shanked bit, that whole progression of events would happen much faster. You would sit a horse down and turn him over much faster because of the leverage. If I go, if I go to throw my whole body weight into that. Um, which is fine, I might do that. But I gotta be quick on the release before he starts going over his hocks. Yeah, that
4: was hard even when yeah. things were good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were just standing still. <laughs>
0: so it's yeah, so it's gotta become an automatic movement where you go. I like sound effects.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it did seem easier with, with, with regular that were not split. split Closed loop so rein is much
0: easier riding than split ring in all matters. Yes.
4: I agree. <laughs> no question there.
0: No question. Yeah. <laughs>
4: yeah.
0: Now, when it comes to training horses, a split range is a really valuable tool. Okay, who's next?
5: It's kind of interesting that the ranch horses
0: are, all have the split race. This is a very traditional ranch. They use very traditional working ranch tack. There's a soul to this ranch, and that is a part of it. And yeah. they have beautiful tack. Mm-hmm. They do. Yeah. Pat, go ahead. Okay. I have
5: two horses that I believe have separation anxiety, enough so that one of the horses actually injured himself trying to get to the one that left him. So my question is, how do I work them through this? Because I obviously don't want to pony the one horse every time I go on a trail ride. Um, Mm -hmm. But sometimes I don't have two people to ride each horse.
0: It's an unmanageable, untenable situation if you let it get out of control. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions. How old are these horses?
4: 18
0: and 19. Okay. That substantiates one of my theories which is this we tend to have more trouble with herd boundness and separation anxiety in older horses in mature horses um in my whole career of training horses and i'm 59 and i first got paid to ride a horse when i was 14 so it's a long time it has been my observation that when you end up with these unmanageable situations of separation anxiety and herd boundness. It is mostly middle aged horses and older. Even they even though they haven't been together but mm-hmm. three or four months. And here's the reason why. I don't know the reason why. And in my knowledge, mm-hmm. no research has ever been done. This is not the kind of stuff research dollars get spent on. <laughs> Uh, We know horses are instinctively gregarious animals. And so what we refer to as herd bound or that draw to the herd, the behavior is called gregarious behavior. And it's one of seven categories of instinctive behaviors. And it is a very strong instinctive behavior of horses to be drawn to the herd. And it will uh, always be present in horses. Mm -hmm. However... Uh, I have just found having known some horses for most of their lives that horses that have never been a problem with that, all of a sudden they hit about 14 and it starts becoming a problem. So I spent a long time thinking about why is that? If it's true, why is it? And then I started thinking, well, you know, when horses are younger, that's when we tend to be training them. That's one thing. Um, But the more I thought about, the more I realized, you know, horses go through life stages just like humans do, except three times as fast. So if any of you have ever raised young horses, they grow so fast and they become teenagers in just a couple of years. And then they become young adults and they're a little cocky and independent at that age, Um, That's at their age of peak performance generally because they're competitive. They got some spirit to them. Then one day, eight or nine years old, it's starting to look like a lot of work, that thing we used to do that was fun. Then they go into the stage where they're just like a working stiff. Yeah, we go along and maybe we do some new stuff with them. and they go along with that. And, it, you know, so you got this those great years between, let's say, about 8, 13, 14. That's when horses are at their prime. And that is the primo age of horses. By 8, they're mature and they know something if they've been in a good training program. They're, they're experienced. And then 13 or 14, now they're starting to reach the downside <laughs> of prime. And horses at that age start wanting a lot more comfort. They start wanting the protection of the herd around them more. Um, They start fearing separation more. So that's one thing. There's a stage of life issue here. And I think that you, but I do believe that with younger horses, we do work them more. We ride them more. They get They're in a training program, so they're getting separated. They're getting – sometimes they have to stand by themselves Mm -hmm. at the hitching rail. Now, let me come back to what we're going to do about this and first say that this. It is not the horse you take out of the pen that's the problem, right? It's the one you leave behind. Mm -hmm. And the fear of being left behind – for a horse is a horrible primordial fear what horse in the pack of in the herd of fleeing horses what horse is it that gets gets eaten by the mountain lion that's chasing him <laughs> <them?
4: laughs> well, well,
0: okay. horses fear banishment from the herd more than they fear anything horses fear being alone and banishment more than anything and that's why i use i also use that a lot in my training psychology and um you know you i want my horses to be seeking my acceptance and approval all the time and i'm not afraid to show them when i disapprove of them and i'm not afraid to turn my back on them and act like i'm not interested in them and i don't want them go away from me you mean nothing to me If you turn your back on a horse like that with attitude, you mean nothing to me. He's going to turn around, put his head down, start following you and say, please, please, please take me. (laughs) So um, the the horse that is left behind is the one that's having the panic attack. The other one's with you and you're the boss leader. So he's like, "Okay, at least I'm not the one being left behind. (laughs) Also, have you ever noticed how excited horses get when trailers Come in and off your property, whether there's a horse yeah, in them or not, right. why do you think that is Probably think
4: somebody's, taken.
0: somebody's coming or somebody's He's going that. that is a oh, dramatic, dramatic and traumatic event to yeah. to a horse herd and I didn't used to feel this way i mean I grew up i've I've lived my whole life in the horse business, and horses come and go, we buy horses, we sell horses, we rip them out of everything we know, and we send them down the road, never to be seen again. But as I've gotten older and I've come to understand horses more, and we look at horses differently than we did 40 years ago, I see how deeply they form these bonds. And then one day that 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 what you know is ripped away from you. Now think about that horse that gets taken away and all of a sudden strange people, strange place, strange horses, strange environment strange food. Yeah. He just landed on Mars, mm-hmm. you know. So anyway, um I'm I'm more sympathetic to the emotion of those horses. But here's what I would do to manage that. And we deal with that. My mare, oh my god, she's terrible. Uh first of all, we take every opportunity we can to separate horses and we make sure that horses get sometimes they have to go stand by themselves over here. Um, we always we tend to work our horses as a group, so we get all the horses out. We tie them all up. We groom them all. We saddle them all. We ride them all, one or two or three at a time. Um, but some horses are being ridden. Some horses are tied over here. If that horse is starting to show excessive signs of herd boundness and r- fretting about other horses, he might spend some time tied at a remote hitch and rail while we're working the other horses. So we look for opportunities to separate them. Okay. Um, if I'm leaving a horse in a pen and taking one out and this horse is going to act crazy left in the pen, uh, I tie that horse up. I do not let them act crazy because I don't care if they're in a stall, in a run or in a pen if they start frantically running up and down that fence, they work themselves into a tizzy, yeah, that's what and they start thinking. out first kind of just pacing the fence. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, they're running the fence, they're whinnying, and they, they work themselves up yeah. into a dramatic tizzy. And by the way, every time they make those harsh turns, which they start doing in the same spot um, in a very repetitive motion, they're, they're doing joint damage. So, I don't, that's intolerable behavior to me. And the more I let him run up and down that fence, the more that behavior is becoming habitual. So, when it is a broke horse that's trained to stand tied, I just, if I know it's going to happen ahead of time, I bring that horse in its stall and tie him up. If he started pacing and I didn't know it was going to happen, I go right out there and tie him up. And he'll fret for a minute, but then he'll realize he's tied and it's fruitless. So he'll just stand there and he'll come back to a, a calm state.
5: So I probably made a really big mistake because the one instance I can really remember clearly last summer was I was working my horse in the arena and didn't tie the other horse. He went back to the barn and the one I was working with went into a frenzy. Because he said, wanted
0: to go back yeah, to the and barn. I said,
5: oh, no. I'm I'm the boss here, and I worked him, and I was exhausted after an hour. He finally focused on me, but he said, "I'm not giving this up." And but he was moving, yeah. like you said, mm-hmm. and probably creating mm-hmm. some joint damage. I mean, it's a big, big
0: yeah. arena. Well, I've I done I, that with I my mare. I, I did her. Undeniable. I did it down at the okay. National Western Stock Show in this most gigantic, vacuous arena mm-hmm. you ever saw, and I'd brought two or three horses of my horses. And I was making her work by herself in the arena, which was empty at the time. And she could hardly stand it. The geldings, they were back at the stall. They could have cared less. She was gone. And um, so she's calling and calling and Mm -hmm, acting crazy, and I'm riding her. So every time she'd start that, I'd gallop her to the far end of the arena and start just going back and forth, going back and forth, hard, hard, low, back and forth, back and forth, and then back and forth. And when she finally settled down, I'd stop. And if she'd put her head down, I'd start walking back towards, because I was ready to quit. It was like this previous question. (laughs) I'd start walking back towards the stalls. As soon as she'd pick her head up, Winnie, I'd gallop to the far end of the arena, back and forth, back and forth. And this went on for like an hour and a half. And then I was finally getting her to walk with her head down on a loose rein, saying nothing. And I got almost all the way to the gate. I'm like, please don't Winnie, please don't Winnie, please don't Winnie. (laughs) And she winnie And I went, oh, and I galloped her all the way far into the arena. And we did it. And then that time she walked out. Um, And that was a real meaningful moment for her. And now the great thing about that was I stuck it out. I gutted it out there until the bitter end. And I'm stubborn. I'm a stubborn cuss. A horse really doesn't want to get in a war of the will with me. Um, I will avoid a war of the wills at all costs, but once I'm in it, I'm going to stubborn up pretty much too. Um, But I had the time to finish that one through. And now she knows that about me. So now, and she occasionally digresses and I occasionally have to remind her, I'm willing to gallop you all the way down to the end of that vacuous arena. If it takes me all day. Now that she knows that about me, she immediately comes back to me. Yeah. What
4: if they panic while they're tied?
0: What if they, they panic they're while they're tied? They I would only do that with a horse that was trained to tie. Okay. If it was a horse that pulled back, so you normally maybe
4: not pull back. But all of a with goes the craziness. Goes away, away.
0: Tie them up short, they can't pull back. I tie them up short so in a safe place, pass. solid wall, uh, rope halter. I mean, short lead. And, yeah, 18 inches of slack. Um, if that's an older horse, it's pretty broke. That oh, yeah. a, a, a broke horse that's otherwise a good, well-mannered horse, as soon as you tie him up, he's going to clip. He might for a minute do this, but then he remembers, oh, yeah, I'm tied. This is what I do when I'm tied, and he just kind of stands there. If that horse is not trained to tie yet and stand stand well-tied, you're you need to do some very remedial training on that horse and we spend you know from the time a horse is young we have to start teaching him that there will be times when you have to stand tied quietly and wait and we we, that's why we call it the patience post and Mm -hmm. if uh, the horse has been has missed that very fundamental training then there's nothing to do but go back and give it to him. But it would have been much easier to do when he was a youngster. Mm-hmm. So, my two year old, every time we get the horses, he comes out and he stands tight. We might work him or we might not, but he's practicing his manners.
5: Yeah, I just don't want another injury. I mean,
0: yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, you're welcome. So we have a segment of the show called What the Hey? (laughs) Q (laughs) and (laughs) A So who's got a question for the Q and A? Go ahead.
4: My question is regarding trail riding. My horse, who is a green horse, puts his head down and sniffs the trail the entire time. Huh? Like I'm riding uh, okay. Just,
0: you know, <laughs> all right. So. so the question is regarding trail riding and a horse who's a green horse. Mm-hmm. And he puts his head down to the ground, his nose all the way down close to the ground, as if he's sniffing the trail. And you're riding a necklace, <laughs> headless horse. Um, How old is this horse?
4: Uh, well, he's 10 years old.
0: Ten years old, but he's green.
4: He's green. He
0: was um, he was a former racehorse so he in a Okay, so he was a race, so he's a thoroughbred or a, a thoroughbred, and he was raced, and then he was turned out to pasture for a number of years. So that's why he's he's green. He's he's broke because he was on the track, but he doesn't know anything. He the trails. Good. Um, what kind of saddle are you riding in? English English. Um, And you get the feeling he's sniffing the trail? He's not
4: looking for
0: food. He's not eating, but he's stretching his neck down? Completely. Mm-hmm. How long have you had this horse? About a year. A year? And have you ever had him checked by a chiropractor or um anything like that? Yeah,
4: I have. He doesn't
0: seem to, he doesn't doesn't seem to have any chiropractic issues. No,
4: he's, he's actively going down to the parapsychosis
0: you get the feeling he's sniffing the ground okay alright well that's unusual and
4: uh, horses
0: don't well like, like horses like you know horses have a fascination with manure so if yeah. they see manure they gotta go sniff it but they don't What horses sniff the air so they're they smell things by lifting their nose up and, and sniffing the movement of the air so they're, they're smelling elk that are still a half a mile or a mile away from you so they're not tracking by sniffing the ground and I'm not saying your horse is not doing that I'm just saying when we look at uh, for instance what, what constitutes uh, instinctive behaviors of horses these are behaviors that all members of the species display and that's not one so um, it's it's a unique or novel behavior. So now we have to think. Well, so so why is the horse doing that? I, I've seen horses on many occasions that want to stretch their nose down to the ground in order to stretch their neck or shoulders or back because either. Um, and the rider has been been holding so much contact that their head has been up really high or they have some kind of chiropractic issue where it makes them want to hollow um, and then they counteract that by stretching down and lengthening. Um, of course, there's rooting the reins, but clearly this horse isn't doing that. He's not pulling the reins out of your hands. And, and then um, also... Sometimes you'll see, or you see this more often in stock horses, quarter horses, and the like. That, um, that are very athletic and you'll see them trotting around out in the field with their head down real low like that. When I have a horse that wants to stretch his head down real low when I'm riding him at the trot or canter, I generally just let them do it and see what they're going to do. Usually they're trying. it feels good, so they're trying to stretch something out. And I would re- way rather have the problem of picking a horse's head up than trying to get it down. Um, And so I can pick a horse up into a frame um, nicely, uh, but I have to train him first to lower his head before I can pick him up into a frame if he's a high headed horse. So, but why he's doing that without actually kind of watching everything, uh, I'm just kind of talking about the thoughts that come to my head. But having said that, um, He might like to carry his head down there. He may be sniffing, I don't know. Um, He may be stretching something. He may have learned that that's the place where he finds a release. Um, But wherever, my horse should carry his head wherever I ask him to, basically. I would never ask him to carry it in an unreasonable, unreasonable place. But whether I want my horse's head to be lower or higher, I would ask him by applying pressure until he either raised it or lowered it, and then releasing the pressure the instant the head started moving in that direction. And then I would eventually, that horse would eventually come to the place I wanted his head to be. And he would always find a release there. And from the time he starts understanding that, Anytime he comes above that or below that, he would find pressure and any anytime he came to the sweet spot where I wanted him to be, he would always find a release there. And so using that, um, I can train a horse to put his hat wherever I want pretty fast. So I don't know why he's stretching down like that. Now if you ask him to trot, is this just at a walk or does he do it? A tr- he's a strictly he's a walk
4: horse.
0: He's a walk only horse? Yeah. Okay. A lot of times when I have people in the arena, and working within a clinic or whatever, and I see horses doing that because the horses will definitely drop their head down real low like that. But you, uh, well, why are they doing that is what I want to know. And, um, as I said, a lot of times it's because they've been real hollowed out and they're counteracting by stretching. A lot of times because their back hurts or something hurts. A lot of times they just like that and they're so athletic they can do it. So when I see horses that are doing that and the rider doesn't like it, what I suggest is to ask the horse to go more forward. In going more forward, he generally has to pick his head up. If he can do that and try it, He's a very athletic horse. If he can do it in canter, and some horses can, he's a really athletic horse. But then I'm not worried because I can always pick his head up. Um, I'm happy that he's that athletic a horse. So does anything in, in in any of that make you think one way or the other about this horse? Well, oh, he's
4: pretty athletic.
0: He's an athletic horse? He's a horse. He's inexperienced on the trail, trail, and he has an injury. That means he can't really do much more than walk. Is that what you're saying? I mean, he tried a little bit. He try a little bit. bit. And he can't all the way down. He has no problem. Uh-huh. Well, he could be trying to, you know, figure out what he's doing, looking down. Oh my God, I'm on the trail. Um, but here's the, the discrepancy is that when horses get tense and nervous, they lift their head. When horses relax, they lower their head. So they might also lower their head to in a behavior called snaking, where they're herding another horse. Or, but that's an aggressive and dominant behavior, and it doesn't sound like it's any of that. He does this when he's in the when he's in the lead and you know, I don't know He, who knows but I would ask him to move more forward or just put pressure on his mouth until he lifts his head release the pressure when he gets it up a little higher he might want to carry his head down low I wouldn't make him carry it up real high but just find a level where you can see his neck <laughs> where he's no longer a necklace headless horse you're welcome it is disconcerting yeah Does anybody have a quick question? Bye, 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 bye. Okay.
4: <laughs> Just um <coughs> <safe>. <coughs>
0: to To desensitize to what? So, by being on the horse, meaning that you're on the horse and somebody's handing you something, how do I desensitize yeah, my horse? I'm just trying to have uh, an object, you
4: know, like I said, like adding a sweatshirt and it's getting a long trail
0: ride like, sure. without like the Sure. You know, the type okay. Of well, uh, I wouldn't say that's a quick question, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so desensitizing to any stimulus is um, there's two basic types uh, techniques for desensitizing one's called bombardment which in your case you're trying to desensitize a horse that when you're riding that horse someone can reach up and hand you something whether that be a horse show ribbon a slicker a bottle of water or anything without the horse freaking out so um, there would be two ways to approach that. One is called bombardment and one is called advance and retreat. In my opinion, without question, advance and retreat is the superior method to use with desensitizing horses. Bombardment is when you just flood the stimulus until the horse no longer reacts. In doing that, you're going to be frightening the horse. So, first you're teaching the horse to be afraid of that. And then you're sort of exhausting the reaction until the horse no longer reacts. It doesn't really help you in the event of um, someone unexpectedly walking up to the horse and handing him something. When you use a bombardment, the horse will desensitize pretty fast. Horses are qu- rapidly desensitizing animals because they're highly sensitive. So they have to desensitize rapidly and they, and they learn very fast. So, when done right, horses desensitize very, very rapidly. If they're not desensitizing rapidly, you're doing something wrong and it's most likely releasing the pressure from the horse while he's reacting instead of when he stopped reacting. And so, um, bombardment is not a technique I would ever use advance and retreat is done in this way no matter what the stimulus you're trying to desensitize water hose clippers um, in your case handing the horse something we did an episode there's a video on my website about this um, so same thing as Trail Horse and she she wanted somebody if actually this horse had had come from a traumatic abusive past and she'd gotten for you spent a couple of years training this horse to get it past being afraid of everything. And it turned into a pretty good trail horse, unless and until somebody unknown approached them and then it would just blow sky high. And and in an urban setting, this was in Southern California, that happens all the time. So we were trying to desensitize this horse to a stranger approaching and reaching for it. And um, so anyway, that that video is on my website. So so what we do is you you set up the scenario and in advance and retreat, you advance with the stimulus slowly until you find the first moment the horse reacts by tensing or moving away or whatever. And the reason why you have to advance in slow motion with the stimulus is to find that exact moment. That the horse reacts and then you stop you do not retreat but you do not add more pressure and you wait if the horse is moving away from you you try to stay with the horse if the horse is just standing still but tense you just stand your ground and you wait and it not gonna take long but just a few seconds and you can cue the horse by going And pretty soon you'll see some sign of relaxation and then you retreat. So you reward the relaxation by retreating and taking the stimulus away. Then you approach again, slow motion, wait for the horse to react. Now let's say I approach at this point and the horse started moving away. I would, in your case, you're on the horse and this person is trying to reach at you or or to hand you something, that person needs to stay with you and you need to just let that horse move in a circle. You don't try to stop the horse. The horse has to come to the decision to stop on its own, but you cannot let him get away from the stimulus. So you just start circling around it. If I was trying to desensitize a horse to fly spray or a water hose, I would just hold the lead and I would let him circle around me, but I wouldn't let him get far away from the stimulus. I, so once he's reacting, we got to hold that ground and move with the horse wait until you see the first sign of relaxation or acceptance and then take the stimulus away. Turn your back and walk away. In very short order, if your timing is good in removing the stimulus, in very short, short order, as soon as you turn, turn your back and walk away, the horse will actually start following you. And now, we're bringing out the forward interest in the investigative behavior of the horse. And so, you you progress with advance and retreat, and if, you're, if your timing is good on when you stop progressing and when you retreat, the horse rapidly starts not only accepting the stimulus, but showing forward interest in the stimulus. So I always reward and praise forward interest, but I still take it away from them because the more you take it away from them, the more forward interest they have in it. And so in this way, we are converting fearful behavior into investigative behavior. And the fear of the horse of that stimulus goes away because he, he gets power over it. All he has to do is stand there and take it, and it goes away. And that makes him feel like he has power over the thing he's afraid of. And it just disperses his his fear. So that's Advance and Retreat. Again I've written a lot about it on my website juliegoodnight.com. If you go to juliegoodnight.com slash academy and search Advance and Retreat or desensitizing many many video audio and uh, written resources will come up on that. So um, that's my recommendation on desensitizing.
4: I imagine you could use that with a dog. For example, also clippers, things like that. Like well, dogs are
0: different animals. They're not, they're not, you know, they're sensitive animals, but not in the same way horses are. They're, you know, horses are, are prey animals, so their fear is a different thing than a dog's. But yeah, I mean, desensitizing what I know about us horses, I don't know about desensitizing dogs. But I do think it would work in that fear, and then you take, you know, when they, you see some sign of acceptance, you take it away. That's training. And I don't know, maybe some of you are in the psychology field, but when we talk about replacement training in horses, I was talking about some of that with some of you today. Um, it is a technique that we know works really well. Replacing one behavior uh, with another in horses is far more effective than trying to make a behavior go away by punishing it. Um, I just recently found out that came from the human psychology field, and particularly in drug rehab.
4: You gotta have something to. to
0: Right. So think about smoke. You know, when you're trying to, you're a chain smoker, and you're trying to break that habit. You gotta figure out something to do with your hands. A friend of mine, neighbor of mine, was an alcoholic for years. Well, not before I met him. He was into horses when I met him. He owned a big body shop in Denver. But he was, a, he was a functioning alcoholic and, until he decided to dry out and go to AA. And he got to the point where he realized he, he every night after work, he went to the bar. That's what he did. That's where all his friends were. He was a real happy-go-lucky guy. And he, so he realized he had to replace that habit with another one. And right down the street from where he worked was his horse farm. It turned out to be uh, – there's a, a renowned paint horse trainer in Denver named Karen Bannister, and she has a world champion paint horse stallion. And her paint horse stallion – he's a medicine hat stallion. It might even be his name. I'm not sure. But he's a hunter-jumper paint horse stallion, a famous world champion stallion. So he just happens to wander into her barn – and he, he said, I think I'm going to, I think I need to start riding lessons. And he said, and he, and she was there and he says, uh, I'd like to start riding lessons. I'm looking for something to fill my evenings with. Next thing you know, he's jumping horses. He's showing hunters. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, he became, he started breeding horses. He, he uh, really got into it big time and, uh, won an amateur owner world championship and, and never went, as far as I know, never went back to drinking. So... Horses driven me to drinking. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, I'm done. Right? Thank you, guys. I'll eat dinner. uh, Thank you to Smooth-Dried Riding Jeans for sponsoring this podcast. They make it possible for you to listen for free. Be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com slash academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride.